Welcome. You're listening to another episode of AML Conversations, where we sit down with some of the brightest minds in the financial industry to explore topical matters around financial crime and compliance. We hope you enjoy this discussion and please be sure to subscribe for more. Brian, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. What about yourself? I'm good, thanks. So Brian Zadie is the founder of ThreatMinder. And one of the things that we try to do uh, when we're uh, fortunate enough to sit down with experts in the cyberspace is get a sense from you um, sort of some of the high level issues that are uh, challenging the AML sanctions CTF community. You know, understanding, of course, that people in, in my community, we're not experts in this. We really need to lean on um, the IT departments, the corporate security departments, the outside firms that work with uh, both our clients and ourselves. And I guess the way I would start this is uh, the Treasury Department, with the assistance of law enforcement like FBI and Homeland Security, IRS, and of course, FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, came out with a series of priorities back in 2021 that Congress required under the recently passed um, Anti-Money Laundering Act. And one of the priorities of the eight mentioned was uh, cyber threats and cybersecurity. And so... Um, wanted to just spend a little bit of time asking you some questions and getting your sense of things. And I, I guess, um, let, let me start off with one of the areas that is uh, sadly pretty common, that's, that's ransomware. And so we've seen the FBI have issued guidance, case studies, that sort of thing. Um, so if you wouldn't mind, briefly describe ransomware and how, how best to combat it. So what are the, some of the, some of the recommendations that you have being in this space? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I appreciate the time to discuss these, these topics and others with us and with myself. Um, but happy to go through the entire program, but related to ransomware, as you mentioned, it is a very uh, dire situation in ransomware. There's a couple of statistics out there that any SMB midsize organization that's hit by a ransomware attack is is uh, 94% of those businesses are out of business within two years. 60% of them are out of business within six months. So it's a dire uh, uh, place that we're in right now. And the ability for an organization, a large organization might have some resources, a mid and small organization probably doesn't have the same type of resources, the capabilities in-house, the ability to bring in very large enterprise services on the, on the ransomware items to really track it and, and hole up their, their vulnerabilities. So I'd say there are a couple of key aspects, the um, understanding and alleviating and mitigating the risk when it comes to ransomware and, and subsequently phishing and hacking attacks. One is to, there are two sides of it. One is a defensive side and one is an offensive side. Uh, let's speak to the offensive side first. Offensive side is really understanding in getting a sense of who are the main groups that are out there. Are we being mentioned amongst those groups? And we being the organization, the organization's name, employees, vendors, suppliers, um, it might be email addresses, domain information. Are we being mentioned out there across all of these thousands of individuals, uh, groups, and state actors? Is there some semblance that we're on the radar? Is there is our information appearing within marketplaces of information for sale amongst these known organizations? So it's very hard to do. 
Um, that's part and partial of being on the offense and really understanding if we're going to be attacked, how we're going to be attacked and how we're being mentioned. Number one, um, number two, on the defensive side, if you have some semblance of, of who is speaking about you and what, what they're talking about is being, is knowing where your lowest common denominator is the lowest hanging fruit, like where your main vulnerabilities are. Oftentimes, for example, the Chinese and counterintelligence, uh, attacks won't go into the politician. They're going to the politician's family and try to buy the, the family off. Very similar to the ransomware side and the phishing and hacking side too, is folks will go into the lowest hanging fruit. What What is that? Could be subcontractors, vendors, suppliers. Is there somebody that get, gains access to an, to an IP port into your system because they're providing IT services or whatever? So really understanding on the offensive side who's targeting you. And then secondly, being able to do that across all of your vendor and supplier and contractor side is extremely important to really understand, get a core risk assessment of how vulnerable you really are. And once you have that in place, implementing the, the core defensive mechanisms to, to focus down on those areas of weakest link those lowest common uh, denominators that people will attack or are being mentioned. So then you can start to triangulate your defensive with offensive and really kind of come and, and create a comprehensive risk profile to help defend against the ransomware hacking, phishing attacks that can really take your business down. Let, let me ask you. So uh, in, in my simple mind, it sounds like if you have a house with 10 doors versus a house with three doors, it's harder to make sure that the house of 10 doors is secure. So to your, to the broad point of what you said in terms of getting on the offense, see what's out there. If you're a big company with all these entry points, co you know, contractors, uh, part-time employees, you know, whatever it might be, um, you're, you're clearly going to be potentially more vulnerable and to sort of prevent that vulnerable, uh, prevent that vulnerability besides going to see what's out there uh, in terms of targets. It seems to me it's also about, basic things like education, education uh, of your staff, of your staff that oversees contractors in terms of what are the best practices to have a safe, um, uh, have a safe uh, information security system. I, I know I'm being very, very simplistic here, but it sounds like the bigger you are, the bigger the potential threat, but you can mitigate some of that threat by being, as you say, proactive, not just looking for what's out there, but also before it even gets out there, ensuring that you onboard staff and you're training them up right away as best you can to be careful about you know, information dissemination, that sort of thing. Does that, does that make any sense? That, that absolutely does. So there are two factors there, as, as in our opinion, that really factor into the vulnerabilities, the size of the organization and the number of open ports, if you will, with suppliers, vendors, employees, contractors, et cetera, and how folks right. will, could potentially get in phishing attacks, um, card cracking stuff, X, Y, Z. And then it's also on the smaller organizations, oftentimes they don't have the resources. So somebody might be, you know, might have a 10 person business or whatever that's doing a decent amount of money and they're doing their business on their personal laptops. They're using the open right. ISPs. They're connecting to the open Wi-Fi at the coffee shop. They just, you know, they it's not necessarily that they have more openings into their system, which makes them more vulnerable. It's just they're just like, hey, you know what? You know, oftentimes we talk to folks and 
and say, hey, you know what? Facebook's tracking you or Instagram's tracking. They're like, ah, whatever. Like, there's nothing right. that anybody wants to know about me. And it's very similar when when you're dealing with a small, mid-sized business that the vulnerabilities come just from, ah, you know what? No one cares about me. It doesn't really matter. But you know what? Ultimately, people do. If you have five thousand dollars in your in your corporate bank account, that's enough to, sure. to make something something of value. So the education on the organizational side, the larger you are, obviously, the more more openings you have. Like you said, you have 10 doors instead of three. But if you have just those three doors and you really are are kind of just going about your business every day and don't have anything in place for this, um, it, it's a major issue, especially with those stats that if you do get hit, you're going to be out of business. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Do you, do you have a sense of how many, in terms of the ransomware attacks that we're generally aware of, and I know we don't know probably a good percentage of them, just given what that is. Do you have a sense of uh, how many institutions uh, will, will pay the fine, will pay the fees to get the information back versus those that don't, that go to law enforcement? I know it's probably anecdotal because my guess is this information is not readily available, but given the space that you've been in and you talk to other experts like yourself, any sense when there is a ransomware case, uh, you know, is it, you know, 10 percent of the time they're they're paying off the hackers or 30 percent, 50 percent? Or is that just not a knowable number? No, I mean, I'll I'll give my perspective on it. It's mm -hmm. kind of an uncheckable fact. Um, but oftentimes we see when an organization, large or small, gets hit by ransomware hacking, phishing, they kind of tie all those things together. Um, they bring in the larger organizations will bring in their communications and marketing teams to try to keep things quiet. The majority, in my opinion, the majority of folks will pay something to get out of a ransomware attack. Okay. Whether that becomes public and how much information, I mean, the average payment out, uh, on ransomware to get everything back, the, the average cost about 130 something grand um for for a business to get out of a full-blown ransomware attack that doesn't mean every payment is one hundred thirty thousand dollars. right right it just means the average so i would you know my guess is it's well well in the majority of folks okay that that will pay just for the sake of something going away it's very much like if you go into the risk of a of a banking organization they will estimate that three basis points will be risk and fraud and that's just part of doing business um, yeah yeah, you know it's funny. Uh, my uh, my father-in-law, who is uh, since he's he's passed away a while ago, but he was a retailer. You remember the old Woolworth company and oh, Walker. Yeah. So what he would say is, when he managed a store, you know, this is thirty, forty years ago. The front of the store would have items that they knew were going to get shoplifted. <laughs> so there was there was actually a retail name for that, uh, and I forget what it was called. But uh, so sort of the same thing, knowing that cost of doing business front of the store no matter what you did in terms of being secure you were going to lose some some element of products that were going to get walked out the door so they tried to put the least uh impactful mm -hmm. from a financial standpoint so it sounds like a similar theme that you know institutions you, you can fight this you could say you're not going to do it you can you can engage law enforcement which obviously you always want to report to law enforcement this has happened but i can understand the saying you know what we need this to go away we'll improve our security protection going forward. But for now, we're going to lose so much money by being down for a number of days that they do that. It's a, it sounds logical to me. Yeah, that's right. And it's, you know, the, the difference is the lowest common denominator. 
Um, the only caveat into that. And what I mean by that is a lot of ransomware hacking attacks, people don't know that it's going on until X amount of time later. Until that organization right. finds something that's of value or has enough data to make it a value to shut a system down or steal data or something that comes up that's very proprietary, then they send a, a message over saying, hey, we have this, plus we have another three terabytes of data sitting here. What do you want to do? So often organizations don't find out until three, six, nine, 12, two months, two years down the road that they've actually been infiltrated. And by then it's fully throughout the entire system because the sophisticated folks will put a back door. And even if it's a, an IP address or if it's, or if it's a phishing or put some semblance of a back door in, that makes it very, very difficult to, to, to determine that it's there. Right. Uh, just just for folks that are uh, checking in on, on our conversation, uh, Brian's in Montana. I'm in Northern Virginia, so occasionally I've, I've lost them for two or three seconds here or there, but we've gotten the gist of this. So we'll, we'll keep plugging along and as great as technology is. Um, but, but I did get the response on ransomware, the rationale. It makes perfect sense. Let, let me shift gears a little bit and ask you about analysis of data, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I know your company does this, our company does this. We'll look at data and try to make determinations on uh, how to cultivate that data, look at it to uh, mitigate various threats. And so a couple questions. Number one would be some of what uh, a lot of companies, like I said, yours, ours, and others do, is we look at uh, open source information. So social media, open internet, uh, you know, without being facetious, today, in today's world, sadly, we have questions about the validity of information in some cases. So, you know, besides the obvious, you know, political statements aside, because those tend to be hyperbolic to begin with, no matter what side. But the question of whether the information out there, uh, forget the dark web for now, but just on open source information is actually accurate. You know, obviously, we're not trying to figure out how the uh, how the sauce is made, as you uh, as you could imagine. Mm-hmm. But just generally, what's the challenge for analysts like yourself to make sure that the open source information that you're reviewing both is accurate to the extent you can do that, and also that you're couching a decision with that and other information? So I'll give you an example. Um, in the banking world, when we do um, suspicious activity reporting, so one of the things you do occasionally, you'll see a local story. Maybe the local story is about an account holder that's been charged with a crime. So been charged, not convicted. So you sort of factor that in. Does that mean I look at that person's bank account and make some decisions? Well, maybe not make decisions, but I would argue that the banks will sort of pull the account and look at it, you know, just to see if there's anything potentially uh, unique or, or untoward there. So I think uh, even if it's a charge that eventually doesn't result in a conviction, you're doing that. Are there similar analogies that you could make with open source information in general, in terms of how you would analyze it for a client or for your own firm to determine whether it's accurate and and how to respond to it? Absolutely. It's a a very difficult, difficult problem for a lot of organizations. What is real? What is not real? Is this person that's complaining about our business? Is this person even on the ransomware side that's threatening to attack us? Are they real? Are they just hyperbolic? Are they kids just playing around or what's the true intent behind there? 
Um, very, very difficult problem for a lot of organizations. What, what we try to go about doing it is a single piece of information is just that. It's a single yeah. piece of information. Now, what we try to do is try to cross triangulate, however you want to say it, with a, a number of different sources of information. It might be IP ad address information, location information, um, address information, business owner information, um, all kinds of different sources to try to say, what is the propensity of this, in, of this item to be actually true? What's the, what's the propensity of this, this post on, on OSINT, on open source data to be actually of and from that account user that it, is, that it, it per, uh, pertains to be? And, um, and then that helps you get a percentage of reliability um, that, that we kind of call it of, of what our belief is that this is mm -hmm. actual real. Um, we see it all the time. You see it with, uh, you know, on risk factors, if you go into the banking world, like you mentioned, of the, the fraud factor on SMB credit lines is 10 times that of a consumer. And the reason being is there is very limited information on a business when it when it just gets started up versus, you know, you and I were born, you know, I was born five decades ago. Right. There's a lot of information out there on me, good and bad. Right. For a right. business, there's not. And so how real is this business? Is the person that's submitting the information, are they actually the owner of the business? Does the owner actually know that this is happening? Um, very, very difficult questions. But when you start triangulating multiple data sources together, right. you can you can start to limit that down. Now, what gets really kind of uh, separate of that as a tangent or, or an augmentation of that discussion is when there's a very, very overt threat or overt item that that comes and it's from, you know, and somebody's very sophisticated in how they do it, hiding their IP address, uh, new accounts, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that gets into the systems that, that we put in place that you guys do at AML, that we do at ThreatMinder are built for efficiency and scalability across all the different data points. And at that point, once our system finds X amount of, of information, about something, then I think it becomes imperative that there's a human aspect, a human intelligence, human analyst aspect that can go in and, and do additional information additional uh, triage of that data um, to make sure that you're making the right decision. Because if you don't, there are dire consequences. I mean, you can get sued. Right. Um, you can get, have regulatory issues. You're going to have fraud and financial issues. You could have all kinds of, of different financial uh, concerns, reputational issues, et cetera. Um, hey, you shut my business down for no reason on the credit line, for example. So right. I think that's a, it's a difficult question. But it's kind of like if you if you go out and you're and you're trawling for and you're out fishing, like right deep sea fishing, and you're just kind of hanging out, hanging out. Something pops on a radar. All of a sudden, you drop everything down. You drop a bunch of lines to try to get that school of fish. The more the bigger that that item is on the radar, the more you know that there's going to be a lot of fish there. Very similar on on the informational side, in our opinion. Uh, that makes sense. Uh, I'll stick with the human intelligence. I think you already answered this question. I'm going to ask you about AI in a second, but, you know, um, our partners in law enforcement have said technology is obviously extremely useful. Um, they're obviously sort of late adapters to which they will, they will readily admit. But they also say at the end of the day, you also need that human intelligence aspect, which I think you just made a good example of, of why that's important. So um, I assume you, you agree that a combination of 
artificial intelligence, analytics, and human intelligence. So if somebody has a, an investigatory background, like you say, if they're looking at one piece of data, they're not going to make a decision. I think you, you made it very clear. You're not going to make a decision based on that. It is just that, just one piece of data. So sort of it's, it seems to me to be safe to say you, you need a combination and I don't know what the percentages are, but a combination of artificial intelligence and human intelligence to get to the, as they say, the bottom line, right? No, nah, that we can't agree more. We view technology and human analysts, human intelligence as kind of means and a medium uh, that, that coalesce. They're very adjunct to each other. And what I mean by that is, you know, systems like ours, systems like AML's can do the work, the initial triage work of hundreds of analysts uh, sitting around trying to analyze, do Google searches, et cetera, uh, on, on information. And we can do that efficiently and at scale to triage information down using artificial intelligence, which we can define in a minute, right. uh, using systemic uh, data attributes, risk attributes that we put into place based off of X number of different, different um, algorithms, et cetera. But at some point, somebody has to look at that and say, yes, this actually makes sense. And so our goal as a, as a data risk analytics organization is really to say, look, we're going to be the scalability and the efficiency that, that's going to help your analysts really focus in and hone in on the things that they really should be focused on. And from there, they can go deeper and deeper, basically. Right. But we're going to remove the thousand false positives that those folks would be running down in a normal environment. Now, will we be able to do 100% of what an analyst does? No, I don't think it, I don't think any, even the most sophisticated AI system won't be able to do that. You know, the Facebooks of the world, um, right. et cetera. Um, you still need somebody to take a peek and say, yes, this makes sense. I'll give you an example. Uh, we do work with, with some, some major uh, gaming organizations. And you can imagine the type of data that we're receiving from right. the users of people saying, hey, I'm gonna come in, I'm gonna take my gun and, and kill everybody in the room, all kinds of different stuff. Now, a system might flag that, we can get better at not flagging that, and then an end user and an analyst has to look and say, like, what is the true intent behind that? Um, now, that's just an example, but that's kind of an example of like removing out the, the noise because there's so much noise out there, digital noise, that, that you can get sucked down a rabbit hole. If you've ever been on YouTube late yeah. in the evening and you just want to go and next thing you know, it's three hours later, you've been sucked into a rabbit hole. Yeah. That's what we're trying to avoid an analyst from doing by augmenting in, augmenting their capabilities with stuff like AML and stuff like ThreatMiner. Yeah, it's interesting because I can recall um, we here at AML RightSource uh, with our analysts, you know, in some cases, some of the, the clients want sort of a, an efficient way of looking at information. So there's always a question of when you're doing your analytics, how much time do you spend on per, per alert, that sort of thing. And in some cases, unfortunately, uh, hopefully not with our clients, or your clients, it's not, Hey, get these done. Get, to, I'm making this up. Make, get, make sure you have 10 done an hour. And if you don't just pass them through, no, no, no. You still want to get rid of the false positives, but if it means you've got to spend a little more time analyzing the data, uh, because you're an investigator and have that background, you should do that. So I think uh, I, I don't ever see a point where human intelligence isn't going to be a value add. So, uh, but let's go back to a couple more quick questions. But this one is, I know we can spend a lot of time on the next one, but I'm always interested in people in your world, 
how you define artificial intelligence. We go to many, many AML related conferences, um, financial crime prevention conferences, and it's always a panel or two with uh, experts uh, that talk about technology. And sometimes I think they, they use the term artificial intelligence correctly. Sometimes I'm not so sure. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> how, how do you define AI? It, it's a very good question. It's a big, it's a big, kind of topic area, artificial intelligence, machine learning that people just kind of throw out there. And what does it really mean? In our, on our perspective, we view AI as the ability to look at a data point from multiple different facets and, and perspectives very, very quickly. And what I mean by that is, you know, the human brain will look a piece uh, at an email and say, oh, that person's being facetious, right? Of, of saying, right. hey, Hey, John, AML, you guys are on fire. You're killing it, right? We know for sure immediately as a human brain that that's a positive thing, not a negative thing. Most systemic systems would say, oh, my gosh, it said fire and kill. And it's, it's, John, it's bad sentiment and it's a bad alert, a bad threat. Now, from our perspective, the ability for an artificial intelligence system to look at that piece of email and say, look, I'm, I'm going to look at it from a negative perspective. I'm going to look at it from a positive perspective and look at it from these 12 different perspectives very, very quickly. And then ascertain based off of, off of the information I have in the system prior, what is the most likely occurrence that that email or that context in the message pertains to? In this case, a system can, can relatively quickly figure out that that's a positive, not a negative. So we look at it as just the ability to look at a piece of information hundreds of different ways very, very quickly and efficiently and then ascertain what the most likely scenario is of that right. data. Well, that makes, that makes sense. Uh, Brian, I'll get you out of here on this. Um, I'm always impressed and fascinated with folks that are, were able to create their own businesses, no, knowing how difficult that could be, how challenging, but also how uh, rewarding it must be. Uh, give us a little bit uh, of your background before you founded Threatminder. Uh, just where you came from and what drove you to create your own business and just just generally, how's it going? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. So I started my career, I was on Wall Street. I was in San Francisco on a Pacific Stock Exchange. And quickly what I found out, my personality is more so, hey, I would rather build something that other people trade rather than trade something that other people built. Right. And that's always kind of been my personality. And so, you know, this is my fourth startup. And for good or bad, um, you know, the, the ability to, to build something that didn't exist before, help folks out, um, have people believe in you, have people basically believe in the system and the thing that you're building is a very powerful, almost you want to say aphrodisiac, right? It's very powerful to solve a solution that people have been trying to solve for a long period of time, um, if not for the case of, you know, human history in some businesses, you know, like traveling, SpaceX, et cetera. But, you know, can something that we built, that us at ThreatMinder built, uh, help solve this problem of ransomware, of hacking, of risk? You know, can folks at AML help solve the anti-money laundering problem that, that helps finance sex trafficking, all kinds of different things. To me, the ability to put something in place that simplifies down the problems very, very simply and tacitly for an organization is very powerful. 
And so again, I, I had to get out of Wall Street and, and go into the tech world for good or bad, which is why I have a lot of gray hair. But, um, but that's kind of the background as far as how business is going. I mean, there's no end to this game of whack-a-mole when it comes to risk, when it comes yeah. to cyber, when it comes to ransomware, money laundering. You know, you're dealing with people. And I always tell, tell our partners that when somebody built it, somebody can break it. And whether it's a ransomware hacking, phishing, whether it's risk, whether it's a new business, new organization, a small business trying to get a credit line, whatever, somebody's going to try to break your system. You know, can we solve that puzzle to help them, if not not break your system, but alleviate and mitigate the risk pursuant to your overall business um, for what interpersonally people are going to do in general? Try to figure out ways around the system. Yeah, you know, Brian, it's... Uh shouldn't be on a bumper sticker, but somebody built it, somebody can break it is obviously a good rule of thumb for all of us that are in this, in this world, whether directly or tangentially as, as we are in, in the AML financial crime sanction space. Uh, Brian Zady, thank you so much for your insight today. Really appreciate it. Uh, stay safe and we'll talk again soon. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, John. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another episode of AML Conversations, brought to you by AML RightSource. To make sure you're staying up to date with what's going on in the industry, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast to get the latest episode.